Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, August 28th. The smoky conditions we've experienced this summer can be irritating and can put a damper on your outdoor plans. But have you considered the long-term effects of breathing in wildfire smoke? We take a look at the potential health risks from Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Last week's death of Vladimir Putin's greatest adversary, Yevgeny Prigozhin, brings about many questions for the future of Putin's leadership. We discuss the impact of what many people are calling an assassination with Oral Braun, Professor of Political Science from the University of Toronto. And finally, a local tech company is using their innovations in geothermal energy to help change the face of the Canadian energy industry and at the same time provide much-needed power across the globe. We hear details on the work being done by Calgary-based Ever Technologies. What are the long-term health impacts of living with this wildfire smoke? Is there anything we can do to protect our lungs and our overall health from these conditions? Talk about it. We are joined this morning by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing just fine. And the air seems pretty clear this morning. It does. It does seem a little bit better, doesn't it? Uh, but is, I mean, is there anything we can do? And, and do you think down the road we're going to see some impact from what we've been breathing and living in for the past, well, I guess maybe even a year? I mean, it's because we've had forest fire smoke before, but this past, what, six months, I guess, maybe even, it's just terrible. That's been the worst of the worst. Yes, this is nothing really new. But just the magnitude of it seems so catastrophic this summer. Um, and, and there's studies coming out now that are showing this isn't just a lung issue. Uh, we know about smoke, and if you get in, your, your asthma can be exacerbated. Your COPD can be a problem. But now there's studies telling us that this can affect our brain, that the particulate matter can actually cross what we call the blood-brain barrier and can actually... Uh, affect or in, inflame our brain and this might be a cause of dementia so this is the latest greatest um, uh, fear or latest greatest uh, science is telling us how bad this particulate matter really is okay so we can't control the smoke unfortunately you know the men and women out there doing what they can to battle these wildfires that's great but in the meantime if this is our reality what what can we do to protect ourselves dr j well, we have to watch our exposure. So if it is a day where the index is very high and you don't have to be outside, you don't go outside. You close your windows. You uh, have air filtration system in your house uh, so that you're not drawing in smoky air into the into your house. Uh, the use of masks and can help, and they unfortunately have to be N95 masks. Uh, that's the only thing that can actually filter out this kind of particulate matter. In regards to exercise or being active outdoors, which we love to do in the summer, we have to be careful. If it's a bad day, you might have to stay indoors to exercise. If it's a good day and it's clear, you get out to enjoy the sun and enjoy the uh, the summer weather. But we really now, this becomes a, a restriction to how we live our lives. Um, but that's a restriction that we really have to heed or we're going to pay a price medically for that. And Dr. J, sort of on that note, what, I mean, what do you see or what could we potentially see down the road as a result of this? Uh, it doesn't look good uh, because as, as our uh, climate is changing and as wildfires seem to be an annual event and just a, it's a matter of when it'll happen and how bad it will be, um, the future <laughs> sort of looks smoky. It doesn't look very good. Um, so I'm not sure how we're going to get around this, uh, whether this is going to be uh, new ways to try to manage uh, forest fires or, or ways that we have to manage us as humans in, in nature, because nature is really being, um, you know, throwing us a curveball here. 
Uh, so one way or the other, something has to change, and we have to learn how to manage this uh, moving forward. And, of course, managing for ourselves is, is fine as adults, but I think that this is something we have to, as, as parents perhaps and caregivers, look for the kids in the sense look out for the kids in the sense that the same way that we have to put our own sunscreen on we start early with the kids when it comes to sunscreen i guess we have to get the messaging out early to the kids that it might not be the best time to play outside for two hours yeah which is kind of sad isn't it but you're exactly right this is uh, the kind of uh, modification we'll have to make to our lifestyle and then there may be times when we can do things that we love to do and other times where this is uh takes over this is dominant and we have to listen to it uh during the summer and hopefully it will just remain you know in a restricted period of time of a few months and it isn't going to now involve spring and fall and you know all times through the year um uh you know that this at least is a, a few months out of our lives but yeah i guess we will have to modify our lives one way or the other and follow there's those air quality index ratings and maybe those need a little bit of upgrading and up changing as well but in the meantime i i think it's just i think we're going to see some some health fallouts down the line dr j don't you yes yeah and again looking at this dementia picture the notion that this can actually have a brain impact truly this is in a physical sense uh so the the particulate matter can uh essentially bring heavy metals or toxic metals uh, in the environment uh, through our nose up into our brain and that crosses this barrier which protects us and inflames our brain gives us potential plaque that actually physically uh, you know inflames our brain that that's terrifying Mm -hmm. um that that could lead to mental illness uh, ptsd uh dementia that the dementia rates will climb because of this specifically that's, that's really, really scary stuff, I must say. That yeah. it is. I don't think anybody will disagree with that. Thank, thanks for your time this morning, Dr. J. We appreciate it. You betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Is Russian President Vladimir Putin's leadership in question following the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin? Joining us to talk about it is Professor Oral Braun, Professor of International Relations and Political Science at the University of Toronto. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. It was a, a plane crash that uh, appears to have taken the life of Yevgeny Prigozhin. Over the weekend, genetic testing apparently has confirmed Prigozhin did die in that plane crash last week. Can we actually believe this evidence? Is it coming from Russia and Putin? And is it valid, do you think? The assumption by most observers inside and outside Russia is that indeed uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin and the, uh, the number two, uh, Dmitry Utkin, in the Wagner group uh, were killed in this airplane crash, which was something that occurred under very suspicious circumstances. So there is a widespread belief also that this was essentially murder by, air, by airplane. All right. So, but we do hear time and time again. So, is this DNA that we do know at this point? Because we know that Prigozhin has used body doubles in the past. He's gone that far. Uh, so, if beyond a reason of a doubt, this is Prigozhin. Nothing is one hundred percent, but I think it is beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, we're looking at ninety-nine uh, percent uh, probability, uh, and uh, because this is a land of conspiracies because uh, conspiracies do happen in Russia, because people are rumored to use uh, doubles, whether it's Prigozhin uh, or Vladimir Putin, and sometimes the evidence of that is not entirely clear. 
there will always be this lingering suspicion that maybe this was something staged. But then we know that uh, we can go all the way back to the killing of the Tsar's family and that uh, there were those who believed uh, that Anastasia, uh, the youngest daughter, had survived. It wasn't the case. It wasn't true. And so I think uh, this case as well, the evidence is overwhelming that indeed Ingoshin was eliminated. And I think the more important question is what does this mean and why did it take place two months after the mutiny, not immediately? And uh, what does it tell us about the rule of Vladimir Putin? Okay, so let's try and answer that question. You used eliminated, which obviously, you know, is exactly what Putin was trying to do to someone who he viewed as, you know, someone who might possibly usurp him in some sort of way. So what what does this mean and what can we take from this? There is a pattern uh, that opponents, real or imagined, uh, have been uh, killed. And uh, Putin has been in the past extremely ruthless. Individuals were shot. They were poisoned. They were uh, pushed out of windows, defenestration. Uh, some supposedly committed suicide, but were forced into it. And they uh, were punished for much less than what Prigozhin did, which was an actual armed mutiny, where Prigozhin challenged the very premise of Putin's war by saying that this is, first of all, not just a special military operation, but it is actually a war, that it was an unnecessary war, that Ukraine did not attack Russia, and this could have been avoided. And lastly, that the war was very badly run, that the leadership of the Russian military, the Minister of Defense, and the Chief of Staff were incompetent and should be fired or forced to resign. So this is a frontal challenge. And yet, even though the first reaction by Vladimir Putin in the morning of the mutiny was that those engaged in it were traitors, that this was a stab in the back, was treason, by the afternoon, he had no choice but to pardon them, give them amnesty. And several days later, he met the Trigosian, who was, again, unpunished. And so it begs the question, why was it that Trigosian was not uh, uh, immediately removed, immediately punished? And that, that takes us to the very nature of the control that Vladimir Putin has in Russia, and it may not be as tight as people assume. It was very clear at the time of the mutiny that even though the Russian armed forces did not switch en masse to Prigozhin, Prigozhin was welcomed as a hero in the large city of Rostov-on-Don, which is the headquarters of, of the southern area of, of Russia, that Prigozhin's forces, the Wagner Group, were marching largely unopposed towards Moscow. And so the military and the security services were not really willing to fight at that time for Vladimir Putin. He felt he needed to buy himself time. And now what we are likely looking at is what I noted is what some call murder by, by airplane. Mm. But even though Many now assume that Putin has been able to restore his strength. 
I don't think they really quite understand the nature of what Putin's role. And that Putin has been very deeply weakened, that this was a demonstration not so much of power, but rather of duplicity and weakness. And that in the future, Putin may be more vulnerable because now he has members of the Wagner group who were fiercely loyal to the leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, very angry, and some of them may seek revenge. Well, and that's the thing. You think about it, and uh, Putin is a, a smart man. He would not have been around this long if that was not the case. He surrounds himself with people who are loyal to him and have some intelligence to, to open themselves up like this. Uh, he's got to have his head on a, sw- a swivel at this point, and there's got to be some folks kind of waiting in the wings. Where could, if it's not the Wagner group, where could the next dissension come from when it comes to Putin's power? This is uh, what we don't know about how um, challenges occur in this kind of system. Because social scientists always try to look for some kind of clever model. We try to look at links with the past. Do we look at Russian philosophy? Do we look at Russian orthodoxy? Do we look at Russian autocracy? And none of these things really explain the regime of Vladimir Putin because it will have elements uh, of orthodoxy. Uh, We have uh, some pieces of uh, some theocracy, some dictatorship. But in fact, uh, I argued some months ago that the closest analog is the mafia. Organized crime, an organized crime syndicate. And more and more you will see that this is what is being said now, that uh, the Economist magazine came out and called Russia a mafia state, that there was an important article in the Wall Street Journal that also talked about the mafia state. In this kind of leadership, the leader has no choice but to have absolute power and constantly demonstrate to everyone that he is invincible, unchallengeable. Well, the Prigozhin mutiny basically punctured that aura of invincibility. And Vladimir Putin will never have that aura again that he had prior to this. And so the challenge will come from anyone. The challenge from Prigozhin came from a loyalist. Yevgeny Prigozhin never said that he wanted to remove Putin, but he nonetheless presented a frontal challenge to Putinism. And so consequently... It could be in the future a uh, minister, uh, the minister of defense, could be somebody within the secret services, the Siloviki. But there is that additional danger that within the Wagner group, these are people who initially were composed of some of the most capable military people in Russia who had left the military, who had been in specialized units, who then joined the Wagner Group, which was mm-hmm. both uh, an organization that helped project Russian power abroad, whether it's in Syria or in Mali or in the Central uh, African Republic, but it was also a criminal organization where people tremendously enriched themselves. But these individuals became very loyal, yeah. extremely loyal to Prigozhin and at least some of them are likely very, very angry that the leader, in fact, the entire top leadership has been eliminated. Yeah, no At doubt. Point, they may take action, and they know how to do it. They have the training, and they're dangerous. Professor, we'll have to leave it there for time. Thank you so much for your take. It's a fascinating issue, and uh, we'll continue to watch how it plays out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Oral Braun, Professor of International Relations and Poli Sci at the U of T.
Alberta could be a global leader in geothermal technology and a Calgary-based company and their innovative approach could actually help power Germany. Joining us to discuss this is John Redfern, President and CEO of Ever Technologies Incorporated. Good morning to you, John. Good morning to you too. Uh, and just one uh, correction at the sure. start there. I think you said we could be a leader. Oh. We are a leader. All right. Are a leader. Alberta, okay. Alberta is a leader. And that's reflected in the fact that in fact the next World Geothermal Congress will be coming to Calgary. Oh, fantastic. In three years time. Excellent stuff. Yeah, I love to be corrected when it's in the terms of that, <laughs> when it's where we are and not All exactly. Yeah, we're not on the path per se, but we are there expanding and doing great things. Let's talk further about it, but let's get to the uh, geothermal energy. Can you explain it for those folks who maybe not heard it or might not be familiar with it? How do you describe it? It's very simple. Uh, wherever you go in the world, the deeper you go, the hotter the earth gets by about 30 degrees C per kilometer. So you go down deep enough, you have a good heat source. You can then extract that heat through a variety of uh, mechanisms, bring it to the surface and use it as direct heat or use it to boil the fluid that turns a generator that makes electricity. Can you bring it down to sort of uh, everyday terms for us, John, uh, about what this closed loop geothermal system is all about and how that might, is it a different system altogether then? It is a fundamentally different system from traditional geothermal. And everyone in Alberta, I think, can understand traditional geothermal because it's exactly like oil and gas. Uh, traditionally, you go in as an exploration phase and you look for some nice permeable but uh, hot reservoir. And, but instead of producing hydrocarbons from it, you produce a hot brine. And that has all the advantages and disadvantages of such a system. For ourselves, what we do is we dispense with the, uh, the entire aquifer or reservoir that's needed. We just go and basically drill a really, really big radiator kilometers below the surface and we circulate a fluid in it and that fluid will extract heat by conduction just the same way a radiator will. It's sort of operating like a reverse radiator, so absorbing heat rather than, rather than giving it off. And doing it that different way makes a, I mean, changes, changes everything really. Let's, let's dive into the you know, eco footprint and the residuals. If we're, if we're using a liquid, for example, we talk a lot about, for example, fracking and the water is used, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to, to harness that sort of energy. What about this energy? How green is it? This is the ultimate green source. There's no fracking involved. There's no water produced from a reservoir. There's no water injected in reservoir. It means there's no earthquakes. There's no anything. Uh, it's this clean water that circulates in this massive radiator. Uh, going down, heating up, and then naturally rising to the surface and uh, vice versa. Can you talk a little bit about Evor's plans then to, you know, to, to promote Alberta if we are, in fact, a world leader and, uh -huh. and a hub for geothermal? How do you go about even, you know, pushing that message further? Well, you know, it, we've started in Alberta and all the uh, brains of the operation, so to speak, in Alberta. It's a product that's been developed by all our local engineers and geoscientists and software programmers here. And it's a, it's a solution that bears some similarities or was built with some skill sets from the oil sands. So this is sort of the green offshoot of the oil sands. Uh, but to promote it elsewhere, we basically, right from the very start, this is a solution that's designed to go anywhere. But of course, when you have a first-of-kind technology, it's expensive to start, so you want to pick the low-hanging fruit. The low-hanging fruit is in places like Europe. Uh, where they have a real need for this, not just for the energy transition, but for their own energy security. Uh, the whole Ukrainian situation, 
all of a sudden put a lot of the uh, the, the need for energy autonomy or security in, to the fore. And that's what really drove the demand for our type of solution, which can go anywhere and complements wind and solar, really. And we talk about, you know, helping out with the, that project in Germany. What about starting at home here? Like, should, we, should we not see more of a proliferation of this technology here at home? How, how, how is this working? That maybe we, well, we get more credit on the global stage than in our home. We, we are getting credit. Um, you know, I think we should be proud, not just when we produce a natural resource from our own territory, but when we create technology that allows other people to do it themselves. So how often do we get the pride of being an Alberta-based company and having the Chancellor of Germany himself come down and say, this is amazing, we're going to base our you know, energy transition on this, on the heat side. And we've, you know, the same thing, we have partners in Japan, we have people down in the States. So this is a Canadian technology that's going everywhere and employing people in, you know, white-collar jobs that are doing the same sort of skill set they've always had, but they're doing it for a green objective and in a technology that leads the world. So I think we are getting recognition. We do want those sort of export jobs as well. And we will end up doing projects uh, in Canada and in Alberta to start. But it makes sense that as you drive down the cost curve on these new technologies, you pick the low-hanging fruit first, so it's sort of self-financing, and then you go on from there. But we've, we're talking to a number of people, it's still early days in Canada, uh, that we're looking to do projects here as well too. But the main thing, this is a rarer story in Alberta. This is a technology export story, which is unique. Well, congratulations to you and your team, John, and wishing you much success down the road, both here and beyond. And thank you so much for telling us about Evor Technologies. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Evor.com, E-A-V-O-R.com, if you want to find out more.